Hi, and welcome to Fast Talk Femme with Dee Dee Barry and Julie Young. Our guest on this episode is Dr. Trent Stellingworth. Trent serves as a research and development advisor at the Canadian Sport Institute. In this role, he directs several different research projects across different sports performance discipline areas. He also provides physiology expertise to Canada's national athletics, rowing, triathlon, and mountain bike teams. His primary sport and research focuses are in the field of physiology and nutrition interactions, as well as environmental altitude and heat expertise. He co-chairs OTP's Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport, Red S Working Group. Our discussion with Trent will focus on how to avoid the pitfalls of overtraining, Red S, and on how periodized nutrition can be an effective strategy for female endurance athletes. In our newest release of Craft of Coaching with Joe Friel, we explore the art and science of coaching master's athletes. Thanks to Joe Friel and many other coaches, there are more master's athletes than ever before, and they're taking on challenges once thought out of reach. Check out the Craft of Coaching Module 11, Coaching Master's Athletes, for guides to help master's athletes stay fast for years to come. Check out the Craft of Coaching at FastTalkLabs.com. We are thrilled to have Dr. Trent Stellingworth with us today. And I can just say through my education, having read so much of Dr. Stellingworth's work, it's just such a thrill for me to meet him face to face. It's like Christmas has come early for me. He truly is a megastar in the world of physiology and nutrition. And for me, what I respect is his depth and scope of research, but maybe even more so his success in translating and applying that science into effective practice. And I would imagine his position at the Canadian Sport Institute is the perfect opportunity to marry that research and that practice. But Trent, welcome to Fast Talk Femme. And can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you've been up to lately? Yeah, great. That was a really nice introduction, Julie, and I'm humbled to be here with you all. And you can just call me Trent as well. I worked hard for the doctorate, but I appreciate the uh, casualty. And yeah, I work at the Canadian Sport Institute Pacific, and we're one of the Olympic Paralympic Training Centers up in Canada and in, in British Columbia. And I'm I'm based in Victoria, although I'm in Flagstaff right now at a training camp. And uh, I'm the uh, research and development lead for the Institute. That's my primary role. And it's a great role as it spans across all sorts of research projects um, with different universities uh, up in Canada, as well as internationally. And then my personal area of research tends to be areas of sports nutrition, areas of environmental physiology, like altitude training, And then more uh, specifically over the last probably 10 years is female-specific physiology and a lot of work in relative energy deficiency in sport or REDS, which I know that your podcast has covered before. So, And then I also coach a few uh, endurance runners, middle distance to long distance uh, runners, as does my wife. She's a multi-time middle distance Olympian as well and the coach at her local university. And and so both of us... uh, have a small elite group that we we coach. So I appreciate you messaging the, taking the research and putting it into practice. There's nothing like putting it into practice when you have to make coaching decisions uh, every day and every week. Almost seems like, I mean, in some ways, a harder part of the equation. Every researcher out there at the end of their talk, when they ask them a question they can't answer, they'll say, uh, well, we just need to do more research. But on 
Sunday when I'm writing the uh, training programs for the athletes, uh, I can't stop and say, I need more research. So as a coach, you're constantly making decisions without all the information. And as a researcher, you're trying to constantly make decisions with all the information. So it's like a, it's a real push pull. Well, let's start the conversation today and, and, and set the stage by providing an understanding of some key concepts. And as, as you mentioned, relative energy deficiency in sport, otherwise known as REDS, we have, we have touched on this with Dr. Krauss in episode 104, but you've been working on the new International Olympic Committee consensus statement on REDS, which will be published this summer. Can you bring us up to speed on this concept and the value and guidance that this new consensus paper provides to athletes and coaches? Yeah, so I was really honored and excited to be invited into the 2022-2023 International Olympic Committee consensus on REDS. This will be the third one. The first one was in 2014. That's where the REDS concept was first developed. That includes obviously all the great research that's part of the female athlete triad. But at that point, they extended it to say, hey, there's more body systems than just menstrual cycle or, or reproductive health and bone. And it can, obviously, we see reds in males too. And for any of you interested in reds, yeah, Emily, Dr. Krauss is a, a close friend and colleague as well. And I'm sure she covered it really, really well. But there was an appreciation uh, by the International Olympic Committee, the IOC, that the last consensus was 2018. And since 2018, there's been actually more than 200 papers published in the area, including reviews, in the area of REDS or low energy availability. And so there's been a real explosion of work. Some of it is good. Some of it is not so good as with all research. And so the way that they do the consensus is just a little background is they'll invite in usually 10 to 15 people from around the world to Lausanne, to the IOC headquarters. They'll try to have a range of nationalities, a range of genders, a range of different disciplines. So some sports med physicians, some physiologists, some registered dietitians, a psychologist. They had an athlete and coach representative there. So it was a really nice range of people. And we spent two and a half days deep diving into the evidence of what we can say and not yet say about REDS. And uh, that included ahead of time um, for each of the nine papers that'll be published or 10 papers later this summer, as you mentioned, uh, voting statements that'll be published. So every expert would say, hey, like, is low bone mineral density a sign of REDS? Like, how much do you agree in a voting statement? So it was a really rigorous process. It was a neat process to be a part of. We're now preparing all the papers for submission. Some of them are now in submission. And hopefully by the summer in the uh, British Journal of Sports Medicine, you'll you'll start to see all these papers come out. I was humbled to be there. Like some of the experts there were like Margot Mountjoy and Louise Burke from Australia and Dr. Kate Ackerman, who's an endocrinologist out of Harvard and Tony Hackney, who's a physiologist, endocrinologist out of UNC. Jorn Sungat Borgensen, who's done a ton of eating disorder research out of Norway. It was a real honor for me to, to be there. My personal contribution, along with an amazing postdoc that I have, Dr. Ida Hekura, who's based in Canada, is the new clinical assessment tool for REDS. So it's the new diagnostic tool, physician-led, but that people will use to say, yes, this person has REDS or doesn't have REDS, and how severe or what is their risk in a traffic light approach. So it'll, it'll be green, yellow, orange, and red on increasing risk and severity. And we've really laid out and have a whole bunch of um, validated um, approach to that tool. 
It's been a real labor of love. That that was a, a monster paper. It's been submitted now in, in review, and hopefully you'll see that this summer. That sounds amazing. Trent, can you help us understand the concept of overtraining and how red S and overtraining are somewhat intertwined? Yeah. So I think clinically, a lot of us that work at the coalface with athletes, uh, with physicians, with physiologists, with coaches have seen very similar symptoms of overtraining in REDS. When you dig into the research and into the literature and you compare the symptoms of REDS and overtraining, they're almost identical. The only major difference is um, a lot of the REDS research from the female athlete triad background has really focused on bone stress injuries and perhaps overtraining has not focused as much on bone stress injuries. And so they're, they're very intimately and closely, they're like brothers and sisters, but they are different. And as a COVID project, a bunch of us got together to write a position paper that's been published now that highlights the complexities of REDS versus overtraining. I led the writing in that paper, and then we pulled in a whole bunch of the overtraining experts. So the lead author of the last overtraining consensus and diagnostic paper, um, Romain Mewson, is a co-author on, on that paper. And again, like the last overtraining research consensus was 2014, before REDS even existed as a concept. And so one thing that we have seen is that a lot of the previous overtraining studies, probably about 70 to 80% of them are confounded in that when in these studies, when they all of a sudden increase training load by 50% and they measure outcomes, they don't actually account for the fact that they're then in low energy availability. Because when you increase exercise expenditure by 50% and you don't increase energy intake by 50%, you're in a deficit. And so a lot of the overtraining literature is confounded by the fact that is this actually an overtraining or is this actually low energy availability and REDS? And so we did an analysis to, to kind of showcase that. And that's also why I think a lot of the symptoms are, are very, very similar. But the cause or the, the medical term, the etiology of the disease or the syndrome are different. If an athlete presents and you think it's overtraining and you do a full assessment, and you know they're in low energy availability, it's REDS. That is the cause of REDS. Overtraining is truly overtraining. You're able to meet all your nutrition demands. You've excluded for any other diseases or blood work issues or inflammatory disease or autoimmune diseases. And all you're left with is, gee, this athlete has buried themselves with 30-hour training weeks for the last three months, and they've maladapted and they're, they're fatigued. And that, that's kind of like what you're left with with overtraining. Unfortunately, with both syndromes, they are like multifactorial diseases, meaning we don't have a pregnancy test for them. There's not one indicator that says yes or no. Instead, it's an accumulation of risk factors and signs and symptoms that makes the physician more confident of a diagnosis. And other multifactorial diseases like obesity and diabetes can be like that as well. And so it is complex to diagnose these things accurately, but as you'll see soon, hopefully our new clinical assessment tool for, for REDS will, will go a huge step forward in helping clinicians to, to more accurately identify this complex syndrome. So Trent, a goal of our podcast is to provide listeners with actionable information. And so let's, let's shift the conversation now and chat about tangible ways to avoid the pitfalls of REDS and overtraining. 
And for me as a coach, I find many endurance athletes are susceptible to the more is better. If it's not hurting me, it's not helping mentality. And as a coach, I try to consistently educate my athletes on why they're doing things and the principles behind the decision-making. So they have that understanding and that intention when they're doing things to kind of stay the course. But I find it, it's this tricky like balance of achieving those training adaptations while also keeping the athlete healthy. And, and I think, for example, like the autonomic nervous system, the endocrine system, the immune system. And it seems to me that female athletes may walk an even like finer line in finding that balance. So how do you go about achieving this balance between adaptations and health? Yeah, I did a talk a few years ago at uh, one of these sports medicine conferences about how a physician could best use their physiologist. And I had a slide that I made with a big cliff. And part of the physiologist's job is to try to set the fence as close to the cliff edge as possible. And normally you set the fence a little farther back. And then as you learn things, you can you can get that fence a little bit closer to the cliff edge. I then had a picture come in of a of an ambulance cartoon at the bottom of the cliff and said, unfortunately, this is when the physician uh, sometimes comes in as a reactive model, right? And so how can we do a better job at this? Or, you know, as, as a joke, um, there's a great Calvin and Hobbes cartoon where Calvin asks his dad, oh, how do they know the load limit on the bridge? Because they're driving up to a bridge and it says 20 tons. And and the dad's like, well, they, they just drive heavier and heavier trucks across the bridge until it breaks. And then they weigh the truck. And unfortunately, in many instances, coaches don't even weigh the truck. They just go right back into smashing their athletes. And so it's a little bit of a preamble. And what I try to do, you know, we have we need a lot of humility in coaching and that it's really complex. But there's three things. There's three really key things I think we can think about to try to figure out where that fence is on the cliff. And one is whatever sport you're in. Try to find an internal load metric that is easy to track. So that's that's one of them. I'm gonna I'm gonna identify all three, then I'll come back and explain what I mean by them. Second is find an external load metric you can easily track. And then thirdly, have a system to just and this could be self-report to assess athlete systemic fatigue. And it could be a POMS questionnaire, a daily athlete life demands questionnaire. It could be a scale of one to ten. And try to track those three things diligently. And I think with those three things, you're in a really good spot to make much more informed decision-making on how an athlete is tracking. And so with internal load metrics, that's anything internal to the body in its response to exercise. That could be rating of perceived exertion. I love RPE. It's simple. It's easy. I program a bunch of workouts in RPE. Oh, what's the goal today? Is this split, that split? I'm like, no, RPE five. That's the goal today. But it could be heart rate. It could be lactate. Um, those are other internal load response metrics. External load, um, if you're in cycling, it's wattage. If you're in running, it's running speed or it's swim speed. And if you can track those two things, you can see a lot of relationships, especially at steady state in the training. And then if you just have a fatigue score on 1 to 10, I think you're in a really good place. It sounds so easy to do. The hard thing to do is to have the diligence or the athlete to have the diligence to do it longitudinally over a, a long period of time. And so I used to use the word athlete compliance on monitoring. A very good mental performance expert said, 
obviously words matter. So I now use athlete cooperation on monitoring instead of compliance. It's, it's a more positive and proactive word. But then I also talk to the athlete and say, we're going to periodize this monitoring. I'm not going to just send you to do it year round. Like on your break, take your break. In the three weeks before altitude, I really want to focus on these metrics so that when we go to altitude, we have a good baseline. At certain times of the year, a transition phase will drop it all together because there's also monitoring fatigue with the athletes. And so those are the, um, the three things that I would, I would really look at. The last two things I'll just say really quickly is be proactive with your rest and recovery cycles. Don't just wait until the athlete's at the edge of the cliff or, or injured. And, um, you know, if you're on weekly mesocycles, maybe as a runner, it's, a, it's three weeks hard, one week easy. If you're in a non-neuromuscular or a lower neuromuscular sport, like like rowing, maybe you could do a five or six week training block before a recovery block. If you're a high jumper or triple jumper, it might be a 10 day block and then a a recovery block. And then finally, as you just said, um, you have to train hard. Don't I, I'm I'm not, you can look at some of my athletes, Travis, but you got to rest hard too. And fitness doesn't come without fatigue. But performance doesn't come without fitness and shedding fatigue. And so those are the three variables every coach is always trying to manage. It's, it's the fatigue variables, the fitness variables, and the performance variables. And, and it is complex. So I'm humbled to that chaos of complexity. And I, I hope, hope that frames it maybe in a way that people can take something tangible and, and use it. That's really helpful, Trent. I'd be curious as to how you ensure that an athlete's getting adequate recovery. Like how reliant are you on software systems such as like heart rate, power meters versus just the general feedback from the athlete? And how strictly do you have an athlete adhere to like regular rest and recovery periods like during a training week and during a mesocycle? From my experience working with athletes, it seems like it's a constant adjustment based on like the day-to-day feedback or the week-to-week feedback, because some athletes have busy lives. And so, you know, you go into a cycle with a particular plan, but then things come up, psychological stressors or whatever, not enough adequate sleep, and you have to make adjustments. So I'd be curious as to how how you manage all that to ensure they have adequate recovery. Yeah, that's a great question. I'll probably answer it in two different ways. As a physiologist that has worked across rowing, across triathlon, a little bit in pro cycling, mainly track and field, I will work with the coach and use whatever metrics and software that they're keen on, while at the same time supporting and educating them in ways that I think we can enhance their decision making. So I've used a lot of different software approaches out there. You know, a leading leading one is training peaks. And I I think generally for cycling, it's a pretty good model. But again, every single software approach, every approach has its pros and its cons. And it's just really good to have your eyes wide open on on some of the pros and cons. So a training stress score and based on cycling data that I've seen in training peaks holds up pretty well for most people. In sports like running with a way higher neuromuscular demand, I don't think it holds up as well. The muscle fatigue scores are a lot different than just overall training stress scores. So for me as a coach, I've created my own bespoke Excel software solution. It's all RPE and minute-based within periodic checks on heart rate and lactate sampling, just as sense checkers. 
Every single athlete has a Teams channel, and then the staff with that athlete are invited in on the Teams. And so it's, it's a completely live document where the athlete puts in their RPE scores and their minutes, their comments on each day. I then also program in there so that I have a graph that looks on programmed versus actual. Because uh, never assume the athletes are doing what you think is written unless you can confirm that. There can be a disconnect between program versus actual. And I, I, I use that approach. We will do session audits now and again. Um, for example, just a better dial-in threshold pace upon arrival to altitude. We'll do some lactate sampling with some heart rates. But later in the camp, I want them to go and feel again. And so it's not that complex. The beauty of it is that um, the athletes that I work with are really bought in and they can really see over time how valuable it is to go back and like look at really good record keeping. I will then on key workouts as well, um, use a critical velocity model, have their speed and duration curve. Everyone knows critical power model, Mabel. I can do critical velocity. I'm a bit of a techie nerd. I I have a, a template for each athlete and I can see exactly where they're tracking and have had pretty decent success at saying, hey, you're in this kind of shape or this kind of space, or I want you to hit these splits today and it should should be a lactate of 3.5 and, and it works out pretty well. So uh, there's no perfect solution. Long story short, yeah, I think you need to be open-minded to what, what software can add or not add. The biggest factor I think is the athlete's cooperation with the software and then the coach's ability to slowly take on the metrics. Maybe one one last story I'll say here is early in my career, probably one of the bigger mistakes I've made as a physiologist is with a younger coach who is keen and happy. We just did absolutely everything. And it was like an Olympic program. I won't, I won't name names here, but at the end of the year, we would say, ah, they had a B minus or a C plus report card. But because we did too much all at once, it was really hard to decipher what worked, what didn't work. I could tell at the end that the coach was overwhelmed with way too many new metrics. I was overwhelmed with way too many (laughs) new metrics. So go slow, be purposeful about what you're going to track. Maybe add one or two things a year. And slowly as a coach, you'll build some tools that you know work for you and that you can really hang your hat on to make better informed decisions. Trent, do you use, I mean, I know this is kind of basic, but do you use like morning resting heart rate and or WHOOP or Aura data for feedback on recovery? Great question. At certain times of the year, we'll uh, enhance recovery monitoring. So for example, right up here uh, in Flagstaff right now, there's another physiologist here, uh, Gareth Sanford, who's helping out and driving, leading the physiology at this camp. He was a postdoc of mine a few years ago. And so here we'll have a morning heart rate. If athletes want to opt in, a morning um, body weight check because we want to keep people in energy balance. Uh, uh, a morning oxygen saturation check. For some athletes that use HRV, a morning HRV check. It's not, not required. Um, and then a morning hydration check because we're at altitude, basically in the desert Flagstaff. And uh, every morning um, athletes can cooperate and opt into that. Uh, I've strongly, I don't require my athletes. I educate them and hopefully they opt in. So the athletes I'm here are opting in and we get a little report every morning. We see how they're doing, how they're feeling. And yeah, it helps me make more informed decisions on how we're tracking. Um, I certainly write a program for a camp like this in pencil, like three or four weeks in advance. 
but the athletes I work with know from workout to workout, we're going to take information from that workout and apply it in the very next workout. Like, oh, we're going to make these splits faster because you outperformed that last workout. Or we got to pull back here because I overinterpreted where you're at. So yeah, there's constant feedback loops. And I, I don't like the current definition of periodization. I think the current definition of periodization should focus on communication feedback loops rather than this grandiose mythical plan that you could produce at the start of the year. I, I, I think that the definition for periodization should change. I just like a few things you said, kind of initially you're talking about the different feedback mechanisms that you use, you know, and you, you use all of them, RPE, heart rate or power, all of those mechanisms. And I think we see this in cycling. I don't know if you see this as much in running, but people have just become so obsessed with data and especially like their power numbers, like they've thrown everything else out. And I think, I know for me as a coach, like I feel it's, it's so important that athletes are still in tune with how they're feeling because they get in a race situation and in race situations, you know, if they're on dirt, power's not going to apply, heart rate's not going to apply. So you need to be understanding like that perceived exertion. So I really appreciate that. And I also thinking about like whoop and aura, I feel like sometimes kind of what you said, more data is not better. And I think and sometimes it can really play on athletes' heads in the wrong way. I agree. There can be absolutely uh, paralysis by analysis, but also negative feedback loops. And there's now publications uh, on that where people get too obsessed on certain numbers and especially obsessed on numbers that aren't, aren't necessarily validated. Like if you wake up in your Olympic morning, the chances are that you've had a crappy sleep. It's the Olympic final. Well, no kidding. And then you look at your whoop band and it says that you're under-recovered. You don't need that. Get rid of it and realize it's okay that you had a little bit of a crappy sleep. So did everyone else. Here's some military data to show you're going to perform okay off one night of crappy sleep and get out there and go for it. So I, I'm totally with you on, on the overdoing it at times. And my analogy with the marathoners I work with is um, it's a bit metric. I could, I could convert it to uh, Imperial. For the first 20 miles, race with your brain. For the last six miles, race with your heart. And I, I think in a lot of instances, there's a place to use the metrics in racing. But if you don't give yourself a chance to do something special in the last 25% of a race, because you you got to hold this wattage or this heart rate, you may never have the, the epic special day um, where you can rise above. And I coached Natasha Woodick and all my data suggested she was going to run a, her PB going into Berlin Marathon last year was 226.50. I think you can run 224.30. She's like, what? I'm like, yep. Yeah. And so she went out in 224.50 and she ran 223.10. And so my only comment on Twitter was, Natasha, you messed up all my algorithms (laughs) because she ran 90 seconds faster. She had like a four minute PB or three and a half minute. And she did that exact thing. She ran 224.30 through 30K. Like her last 10K was just unbelievable. Like it was uh, a 33.10 10K at the end of a marathon. So yeah, I, I think there's time for data, but then there's also time for um, feeling it out, your emotions, reading the play of a race, when to go, when not to go. And sometimes uh, I love pro cycling and it's just almost gotten too mechanical at times. And so um, as someone of Dutch descent, um, I like that Matthew Vanderpool is very unpredictable. So he makes it exciting. Uh, I would agree with you. I actually think pro cycling's gotten a lot more exciting in the last few years because a lot of the current pros are racing like juniors. 
They're just going for it with their heart all the way. (laughs) Yeah. I think that was Vanderpool's quote after Perry Roubaix last weekend. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. No, it's really fun to watch. But yeah, one of the more kind of disturbing things that I've seen just working with developmental cyclists is that there is so much public data out there now, power numbers of pros, that kids can compare their numbers. And, you know, I've seen some kids putting out pretty amazing numbers, right? But that gives them this level of confidence that they can skip developmental steps. They focus so much on the power that they forget about tactics. They forget about bike handling and they're trying to push their way into higher level races when they don't quite have all the soft skills that you need to be a great bike racer, for example. And they're, they're almost setting themselves up for failure, even though they can maybe put out similar five minute power values. They're, they're just not quite there. And so, so that can be an issue too, right? I totally agree. And I, coming back to to the Reds piece, it's really important for young athletes to understand that when they see their heroes on TV at the Olympics and what they see visually in terms of body composition is not what they see for probably eight or nine, 10 months of the year. They are in their absolute peak form physically and and body comp and everything else. And you can't aspire to be like that year round. I mean, you'll last a couple of years and that's it. And, you know, Strav is cool too. Like I am wide open. If anyone wants to see any of our training, you can follow Gabriella Debus Stafford. You can follow Natasha Woodock. Every workout's there. The secret is why it's there. That's what happened. Eh, like go for it. It's probably going to mess up most athletes because like they don't understand the context of where we built from or where we're going. And so Didi, I, I, I totally agree with you. And, and Swift five minute power. I mean, can you ride the bunch and hold the wheel and, with 80 people at 55k an hour in a crosswind and an echelon in Belgium. It's a totally different situation. So I almost feel like uh, a good coach can um, fix power better than bike handling at that age. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. true. <laughs> yeah. Hi, listeners. We're so excited that you're here to check out Fast Talk Femme, a new podcast series that's all about the female endurance athlete. Here at Fast Talk Labs, we pride ourselves on being the pioneers of information and education in the endurance sports world for both athletes and coaches. If you like what you hear today, check out more at FastTalkLabs.com. So with young female athletes specializing earlier, do you have any special guidance in terms of training plan development to keep them emotionally and physically healthy? Because I personally see so many of them trying to jump ahead of themselves and push them at the level that really they should be aspiring to maybe a little bit further in, in the future when they're physically and emotionally ready. I'd be curious to, to know how you're managing that. The word that comes to mind and that I'll say over and over and over again is just patience, patience, patience. And I realize that, especially from the endurance sport lens, um, it selects for um, A-type individuals, high performers, perfectionist attitudes. And those are those are good attributes to have. And when you're a young girl or a young boy and you can make a world cross-country team or go to U23, UCI Worlds, you're, you want to go all in on that opportunity. And I get it. Sometimes it might be your only shot or your only crack at it. But I would also just always say, educate yourself on how many people as juniors make it to seniors. It's not many. There's a few or that are outliers. 
educate yourself on the fact that every single world record in endurance sport is held by a senior woman and not a junior woman. Educate yourself that every single world record holder is a senior woman. They've weighed more than a junior woman. They have more muscle mass. They have better health. And so I think some of these things just have to be impermeated in and just to realize that, um, especially through puberty, you need a lot of patience. There's some really important developmental windows that if you don't optimize them during puberty, like bone health, you'll never get it back. You'll be compromised for the rest of your career around bones because um, there, there's two two parts of your life where you really put down a lot of bone accrual and, and one of them's um, in the first three years of your life and the other one's during peak height velocity uh, during puberty. And if, if you miss that period um, because you're not having a menstrual cycle or as a male, you're low testosterone, you're just going to be compromised um, your entire career. And, and in some sports like running, um, that'll just result in five, six stress fractures by the age of 21 and 22, and you're done with the sport. In other sports, uh, like cycling or swimming, um, stress fractures don't present as easily or they're a little more hidden or you can kind of cheat and get away with it a bit more until you forget to clip out at a stoplight and you just tip over and you got a broken collarbone because you you got BMD like grandma. And so again, patience, 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 understanding that athlete development cycles take time. And there's another thing that I'll mention too, and it's under research, but um, there's a couple of papers that gynecological age is also an important factor. And so if we take a 30-year-old woman or a 20-year-old woman in a study and say we just put them into negative 500 calories for a few weeks or for a couple of months, probably every 20-year-old woman will lose their menstrual cycle, while only a handful of 30-year-old women might. There seems to be a protective effect of aging on gynecological age to being more robust to training loads and to some periods of lower energy availability um, if they were to happen, hopefully inadvertently. So again, like we want to get athletes to their best years, healthy years when they're 25 to 35. Heck, we got 40 year olds kick it butt now. So you got to think long-term and you got to be, you got to be patient. Trent, we've referenced your article, Patients During Puberty, several times in this podcast. And I have passed that along to so many parents of kids I coach and directors of teams. And I think the more we can help people be considerate and mindful of that and just, you know, help those kids have, and the people that surround those kids have that perspective of that patience and the long game. That's awesome. I should have mentioned that. Yeah. If you Google search that, I think you'll, you'll find it online somewhere. Yeah. And we've linked it and we will link it. And I just really appreciate that. That's become a guiding principle for me and my practice. So I really appreciate that paper. Let's just kind of jump around a little bit and we'll kind of jump back to a little bit where we started on this with energy availability and that playing such a key role in REDS. And and again, we did chat about this with Dr. Krauss in episode 104 but you know, it seems with wearables, overall energy expenditure is is easier to calculate, more accurately calculate. However, like the calculating energy intake still seems tricky. And I would guess too, like you probably know this better than anyone, working with athletes, you know, wanting them to maintain that healthy relationship with food when you ask them to start logging and weighing, that you know, there's that that jeopardy of of kind of throwing them into that unhealthy relationship with food. So how do you navigate this to accurately calculate energy intake in order to calculate energy availability? I don't. 
Okay. <laughs> I will in research projects, we will try to get a handle in certain research projects of energy availability. And, and just very briefly, energy availability is a simple equation. It's energy intake and calories minus exercise energy expenditure and calories divided by fat-free mass or muscle mass. And it's therefore the energy available left over after training to fuel your body. So, you know, if you take in 3000 calories in food and you have a massive training day and it's 2000 calories, you only have a thousand calories left for basal metabolic rate, recovery and glycogen and bone health and menstrual cycle and reproductive health, uh, liver glucose production, the brain likes glucose. That's where psychology comes in and depression and everything like that. The whole body needs energy. Your brain needs energy. It's a simple equation that is very fraught for over and under reporting of energy intake. And even with wearables, it's still challenging to really drill into accurate exercise energy expenditures. In situations where you have a wearable that features heart rate and wattage and it's steady state, it's, it's pretty good. But in interval sessions and uh, short interval sessions and any anaerobic sessions, our ability to measure energy expenditure in the anaerobic domain is, is frankly dreadful, even with metabolic carts and everything else. It's the white elephant in the physiologist's corner. We're, we're, we're always estimating in the anaerobic domain. So the, the, the gold standard is double labeled water, which is a really expensive lab approach to measure total daily energy expenditure, but we're still back calculating and predicting the exercise part. So in practice as a coach, I don't uh, try to get a handle on that. Instead, we use markers, long-term markers and short-term markers of low energy availability. So short-term markers are poor recovery from session to session, bombing workouts every two or three times because you just haven't recovered well enough and probably haven't eaten enough, specifically carbohydrates, to get your glycogen back up. Mood shifts and changes. Obviously, a change in menstrual cycle status. For males, a change in morning erections. I know that's kind of hard to talk about as a coach, but males should be aware of that. That is a very good marker for a male sex drive or morning erections. Longer term, it's bone health. It's depression of sex hormones, depression of T3, thyroid hormone are, are also indicators. So you're better off to look at the indicators rather than to try to measure low energy availability. Even our Olympic level trained registered dietitians rarely go down that path. They will do some food logs now and again, but more to see how an athlete structures their eating throughout the day to see for opportunities to have better caloric spread across the day rather than to use it to try to estimate energy intake. Cause again, um, it's really messy. So I've said this on other podcasts. I'll just finish with it. Um, at the very best, even in laboratory measurements, um, we can get energy availability to within accuracy of maybe 300 calories a day. And that's pretty good. You're like, okay, but if you're out 300 calories a day for a year, that's 110,000 calories that you messed up on. That's like taking the month of March off of eating. And this is the really tricky and insidious thing with reds and low energy availability is the mismatch for most athletes is usually only three, 400 calories. It's, it's actually quite small. It's, it's like a really aggressive recovery beverage. <laughs> um, and, and on a one day, it doesn't matter. It's just when that happens for months on end or a year, all of a sudden, man, I, I should have been up a hundred thousand calories and I, I just, I'm not. And then slowly these things uh, present and yeah, 
loss of menstrual cycle, bone health, lack of recovery, increased illnesses, um, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I, uh, what I'll say is uh, getting a handle on low energy availability is truly kind of for the research grade professionals because it, it's really hard to do. Trent, this may be a stupid question and I'm not an exercise physiologist, so excuse me if it is. <laughs> but like I know continuous lactate monitors are in the works. And once you have that information, will that affect your ability to measure energy availability better for those high intensity workouts where you are saying like right now it's a white elephant, like you really can't measure it at all? Will that be game changing, do you think, in that regard or or not? Physiology is really complex. So there's no such thing as a dumb question because I, I have about 10 dumb questions myself and I try to study it my whole life. Us humans are tricky. So it's a great question. To be 100% sure, you did mean continuous lactate monitors, not glucose. I mean, glucose, like we already have it, and it yes. seems like it's still a tricky... Oh, I, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, we could do a whole... We want to yeah. do a podcast on that. But I was wondering more with those high-intensity efforts, yeah. if lactate will help inform. It will a little bit, but I don't think any better than what we have now. And the reason I say that is if you have an athlete who is... Uh, has a very anaerobic dominant profile and you have them do a full warm up, and they do it 90 seconds all out and you measure their lactate three minutes later. And if they're anaerobically dominant, it's going to be between 15 to 20. If they're aerobically dominant, it's going to be maybe around eight to 12. They just can't produce as much lactate because they don't have the muscle mass and they don't have the fiber typing to do it. Mm-hmm. Now that anaerobic faster twitch muscly athlete that peak lactate will still be high an hour later. So we just don't have the resolution. So even if we had continuous lactate monitoring, it's going to go up in the first interval. We already know that. And then it's just going to kind of live there. Even with the rest, it won't it won't come down very much. Um, and so I, I'm not sure we would get the resolution we would need to um, to best do that. The, the way that it's functionally done now is we look at old muscle biopsy studies where they took muscle biopsies like in a six-second sprint, like a 10-second sprint, a 15-second sprint. And then we can make back calculations of how much glycogen was used and how much lactate was produced and as well as the power outputs and then the blood lactates. And you can get a, a decent handle by going back to the biochemistry and looking at all the pathways and, and calculating ATP, like old school, high school, university biochemistry. And our understanding and appreciation of the anaerobic domains and even how big or little it is it's just hard to do methodologically. And the reason I say that is very well-trained athletes on a 30-second sprint will already have their aerobic metabolism turning on at a high degree over the last 10 seconds of that sprint. So in other words, you're no longer measuring just anaerobic. You're measuring anaerobic and aerobic. Well, how much of, like, what is it? Like, how do you get your hands on that, right? So yeah, like a good 30-second all-out sprint with a lactate will give you a great indicator of whether how anaerobically dominant an athlete is or isn't. And I think for um, 99% of coaches' decisions, that that simple test will get you where you need to be. I have a couple follow-ups since we're talking about lactate. You had said that in training, you, you will, I believe you'll use lactate measurement as a way to determine an interval, I suppose, like you're, you're hitting a three millimole in, a, in an interval. I run a, a physiology lab and I, I'm familiar with work using the lactate meter in the lab, but can you help us understand how you'd use that in the field? Yep. So one thing that I found very helpful in my practice as a physiologist 
is to work closely with coaches to periodically do what I'll call it, or others call it too, not just me, a session audit. Like, okay, you're a track coach and you love six by a K on three minutes or two minutes. And you have that in there a few times a year. How do you know what the athlete, what are the outcomes that you're actually looking for out of that session? So we won't do this on every session because it's just way too time intensive. But on certain sessions, we'll then have it all set up so we can maybe, especially at altitude, we'll get the heart rate profiles, we'll get the lactate profiles throughout, we'll get the speed profiles or wattage profiles throughout. We'll slip a O2 sat meter on between the intervals quickly to see how much they're desaturated and coming back. And then we'll look at lactate clearance at the end. So maybe the last lactate is 30 minutes and 60 minutes post-session. Uh, I'll bring that all together into a, a report to the coach. And the quality of conversation that comes out of a session on it like that is awesome. And it's just, oh, wow, those lactates were lower than I thought or higher than I thought. Or look at the heart rates. Or, okay, you know, if we're doing a VO2 max, you know, we want to accumulate um, as many minutes as possible over 90% of heart rate max. Did we do that? How good did we do? Do we have to shorten the rest? Do we have to lengthen the rest? Are the intervals too long for altitude so the athlete's wattages or speeds are just, just tanking? That's no good. Let's split them up. We'll do micro rests of 30 seconds in the workout or, or in the bout. And so, especially for threshold and steady state type efforts, it's quite effective because then in the field, you get a lactate measurement. With the coach there, you can be like, oh, they're, you know, it's a bit hot. They're, they're, they're going too fast. We've got to dial it back. Let's make this next kilometer rep 320 per K rather than 315 and we'll do another check. Okay, that's the number. Okay, let's just keep it there. And it, it just, it creates some... Um, uh, good conversations around pace discipline. Athletes don't necessarily have great pace discipline. It's a learned thing, I believe. And when you can give some feedback uh, beyond just the coach's opinion, I think it help, helps accelerate the, the learning around pace discipline of, of, of intervals. But with everything, you can do it way too much. And so we'll just bring it in and out periodically because uh, as a good coach, uh, lactate threshold is very uh, linked to respiratory threshold. And if you're riding a bike beside your athlete and you're listening to their breathing, you can get a lot of information just that way as well. So I'll do a lot of breathing RPE checks on long runs or threshold runs uh, as well. Do you find that your athletes lactate numbers change significantly from sea level to altitude? At a given speed, absolutely yes. So I have a very good 5,000 meter runner I work with. Her 3.5 millimole lactate threshold at sea level is about 315 per kilometer. I don't know, you have to look that up in miles, I'm not sure. And here at altitude in the first week when we did threshold, uh, it was 330 per kilometer. So it was a 15 second per K uh, shift. And that there's papers on that. And that, that's usually typical when in the first week. We have another threshold session coming up later. I'm going to ask her to do the first reps around 325 per K rather than 330. Because I, 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 we're here the extra week, she's uh, accumulated more red blood cells. I, I think we'll be able to pinch it down. But we'll do a little lactate check and, um, and see where, how we're doing. That's so neat to be able to take, I know you said, uh, and we, we talked about this, more is not necessarily better, but for you to kind of be taking all this in and making these like kind of adjustments real time with the coaches must be pretty fun. Yeah, it's, you have to have bought in athletes and coaches for sure um, for it to work. You know, unless you've been under a rock, 
The Ingbertsen brothers out of Norway have done a ton of this. Um, my wife and I lived in Switzerland for seven years and our second home was St. Moritz. So 10 years ago already, we were chatting with the Norwegians and learning from the Swiss. And I, I just, I'm so lucky to have been in the right place at the right time a, a few times because Morius Belkin, who wrote kind of the article on his website on how the Ingbertsons train, he was he was up in Switzerland training at that time and was able to have dinner with him a few times and just better understand what his philosophies were around training. And I certainly don't do all of it, but there's there's elements there that, yeah, have really held up across the test of time. One more follow-up question to some things we've chatted about, just to, to not not to beat a dead horse, but kind of back to energy availability. And so, you know, maybe most of our listeners may not have the access to like the nutritionists, the physiologists, the coaches. So are there any like suggestions, strategies you could suggest for those athletes in order to avoid kind of tempting that low energy availability, you know, as opposed to waiting for those signs and signals? Like, are there some things that you could suggest? Yeah. So I'm sure Dr. Krauss did. And earlier in the podcast, I highlighted some of those signs and symptoms to watch for. Um, but more proactively, as, as you've just asked, um, I think it's really important to recognize and understand that the harder you train, the more you train, the more you got to fuel. And it isn't always a subconscious decision. Your hunger signals don't always drive that. You got to be conscious and aware. And so some people will say become a little more mechanical around fueling and eating when there's changes in training intensity, training volumes going up or training locations such as altitude because um, altitude increases uh, basal metabolic rate by 10 to 12%. Just being here along with the uh, makes all the training more carbohydrate dominant. And so just being really aware of those things, um, obviously uh, trying to titrate your food appropriately throughout the day. So good breakfast, good snacks, good lunch, uh, but really emphasizing fueling and carbohydrate fueling before, during, and after training. That's a really a good critical period to focus on. Yeah, don't be back end loading your day with like huge, massive meals because your your body, especially with protein, can only absorb so much. So you want to, you want to spread it out a little bit more. Maybe the last thing I would say is just, again, just be patient with your training program and your training loads. You want to explore the cliff's edge, but you want to do it in a safe way. And, and you want to be able to explore it when you're 28 and 30 and, and maybe at the peak of a career and, and not be broken and out and sick of your uh, sport by the age of 22. Trent, what about supplements? I mean, Generally, from my experience, there's a lot of them that overpromise and under underdeliver, um, but there are some exceptions to that, obviously. And I'd like to know if you feel like there are any that are particularly beneficial for female endurance athletes to boost the effectiveness of training, recovery, so that they can endure a greater training load. What are your thoughts on that? I'm going to be provocative and first ask what your definition of a supplement is, because. There's about 40 of them out there, and even the World Anti-Doping Association doesn't have a clear definition of what a supplement is or isn't. Do you include sports foods as supplements, or, or are those not supplements? Uh, that's tricky, Julie. You're, you're... I mean, I, I guess, like, if we're thinking about, I think, you know, if we think about what yeah. general public thinks about, you know, I think they're thinking of something that might, I guess, caffeine, like things that come in pill form. Okay. I guess it's kind yeah. of, I guess, what I would think about in terms of, because I know like carbohydrates, I mean, they're not a supplement, but they're performance enhancing. But I think more things that are not not necessarily dietary. And things that are legal, 
Yeah, I'm sorry. That was a real nasty question because uh, <laughs> at the last IOC consensus on supplements, it was debated about it for an hour. Like what is and isn't a supplement? And there is now a subcategory. There's food, sports foods, and supplements. There is a gray space at some of the sports foods of like, when does it become a supplement or not? Um, you know, the really nasty example is, you know, an omega-3 in a pill is, is a supplement. What about omega-3 enriched eggs at the grocery store? Is that uh, like where? Yeah. Uh, where do you draw the line? Oh, God. It's tricky. Yeah. That's, a yeah. whole, that's a whole other podcast. Anyways, I do think that there's a time and place for certain. And then within supplements, there's sub there's ergogenic aid or sport performance supplements and then health supplements. And those are separate as well. And by health supplements, I mean a clinically physician diagnosed deficiency in something. So yes, of course, as a female athlete, you should be getting routine blood work. And do female athletes need to take an iron supplement more than male athletes? Yes, they do. That is a supplement that as a health supplement, they definitely need to be aware of. Um, in the winter, could you benefit some from, say, 2,000 international units a day of vitamin D? Yes, you probably could. Um, if you're lactose intolerant, do you need to look at maybe a calcium supplement or calcium-enriched foods? Yes, you should. Beyond that, there's probably performance supplements out there that have enough evidence that if used in the right situation with the right athlete, uh, making sure that they're tested, it might consider. But to me, those are all very elite athlete concepts. And um, it doesn't make sense for a, you know, teenage boy rugby player to be taking creatine, but they're going to McDonald's three days a week. But let's, let's work on wholesome nutrition first. And then when you're 23 or 24 and we've almost maximized your, you're great in the kitchen, you've maximized your recovery, you're close to maximizing training. All right, then we can start talking a little more. But um, yeah, the big five that the IOC have identified are, are, are creatine, beta alanine, sodium bicarbonate, uh, nitrates, so maybe beetroot juice, and, uh, and they, do, they did count caffeine. So I don't think we're in a position yet that there's enough evidence to say this specific ergogenic aid supplement needs to be different for a male or female. Maybe eventually we will get there. Now I'm on a paper that was just published that looked at every single supplement paper ever done and looked at the male and female outcomes of them. And I can say 99.5% of every supplement paper ever published in a female has not used appropriate female methodology. So even though there's females in supplement papers, we still can't really draw a conclusion because they didn't measure menstrual cycle properly or they didn't do baselines properly. It's a massive, um, we, we just don't know yet. That said, you know, there's going to be a bunch of stuff where the recommendations will be the same for men and women if we scale it to, to body mass or body weight, but there's probably some things that'll be a little bit different. I do think that um, sports foods, especially for very busy athletes or athletes that have a lot of... Um, transportation between sessions can be a very effective sport food supplement to help achieve their daily energy availability. So gels and drinks on the bike or a protein shake right after practice because, you know, you're not going to be able to get to dinner in a couple of hours because you're a student athlete. Those things can be quite, quite helpful to get the calories you need. I agree with you. I think like we're so quick to kind of chase these silver bullets. And I, I know from my athletic career, like I felt supplements were distracting from what really mattered in terms of improving my performance. And I think especially, you know, with the young kids, like just 
nail the fundamentals. Like good nutrition is hard, like to your point, McDonald's and sleep and hydration. Like if you can nail those fundamentals, that's going to take you much farther. I agree 100%. One other thing I'd love to, to chat with you about is this, the idea of periodized nutrition. Kind of we've touched on nutrition a little bit. And I know you conducted, I believe it was a nine-year case study with your wife as, as you coached her as a middle distance Olympic runner. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about the concept of periodized nutrition? And if you do feel like it is an effective strategy for female endurance athletes? Yeah, I mean, this is a really big topic that I'll try to whittle down in a few salient comments. Probably starting 10 or 15 years ago, and it was at an IOC sport nutrition uh, consensus that I was invited to. I was um, A bunch of us got together and wrote one of the first papers on the concept of periodized nutrition. And the idea there was, especially in middle distance uh, athletes, is um, the types of volumes and intensities a 1,500-meter runner will do in the fall is sometimes close close to a marathoner. But in the summer and peak season before the Olympics is almost like a sprinter. And so obviously that athlete needs different nutrition recommendations in the fall compared to the summer. And so we presented that concept that just like there's large changes in training periodization, that as registered dietitians or those of us working in nutrition, we should be aware of the energetic, caloric, and macronutrient demands. Like, is, is this training more carbohydrate-based? Is it more fat oxidation? Is it really explosive with long rests? What are the actual demands of the training? And therefore, to then try the best as we can to create food options that will best meet the demands of those training. Part of periodized nutrition is also the potential to periodize body composition. So the paper uh, that was published, uh, and my wife and I talked very much uh, together about health first and and uh, female health first and and reds together uh, as, a, as a coach and an athlete and as a practitioner, was looking at the changes in her body composition very purposely throughout her nine-year career. And um, the fact that her race body composition is absolutely not sustained year round, nor would you want to. And we were able to show a long career, a very successful career with just one uh, one injury. And that was after she had a baby and we were trying to rush back. We, we weren't patient enough. There, there's that word again. She wanted to rush back to try to make uh, a Pan Am team and, and she had a stress fracture because uh, we rushed it. But that's a very elite concept of around periodized body composition. And I would say that nine athletes out of 10 just need to focus on excellent recovery and fueling year round and, and the body composition will take care of itself. And unless you're in a situation where you have a really good team around you of experts that can help deliver a really peak body composition performance, it's something I would not recommend people just try and do on their own because they'll probably get into trouble more often than not. And so the paper has been received in, in, in kind of polarizing. Some people say they really love it because it was a way to show really good health along a, a long career. And then some other people say, oh, people at home are going to try to do this and end up, you know, in reds or an eating disorder. And, and I appreciate that as too, as well. And that's why I've been very upfront and we're very vocal as saying, and when you read the full paper where there's like disclaimers, like, no, this is an elite concept. We had a team around her. We're able to track everything and measure everything. And unless you can do it like that, I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend periodizing body composition um, purposefully. 
I do like the idea, and to me, it makes a ton of sense. And I guess it's kind of thinking of it in really simple terms of just looking at the carbohydrate amounts and having that fluctuate based on the demands of the workout or the goals of the workout. To me, it can kind of be simple in that respect. The macronutrient that needs the most attention to change is carbohydrate. Right now, we report carbohydrate in the research litter as grams per kg per day. And others would love to get to a point where it can be grams per kg per hour of training per day. Because a cyclist who's in the middle of a 35-hour week, so we're talking pros here, the amount of carbohydrates that they need and the amount of sodium they would need would make a uh, obesity physician fall out of their chair. Like I used to run a lot more. I am now on a much lower carbohydrate diet. When I ramp my running back up, that's the macronutrient that, that mainly needs to change on my plate. And so the U.S. Olympic Committee has these awesome plates. So if you just type in USOPC, <laughs> athlete plates, there's these great visuals of just how to structure your plate. And when you look at the visuals, it's, the carbohydrate is what's changing on, on big training days um, versus taper versus small training days to, again, um, try to fuel for what the workout requires and or required. Love that idea. Hey listeners, this is Ryan Kohler, coach, physiologist, and owner of Rocky Mountain Devo. Whether you're a competitive athlete or a fitness-focused individual, Rocky Mountain Devo has a place for you. We provide coaching, nutrition, lactate and metabolic testing, and training plan guidance so that you can get to where you want to be. Check us out today at RockyMountainDevo.com. Trent, I'd like to wrap up by just asking if you could give three actionable pieces of advice for female endurance athletes to avoid the pitfalls of red acid overtraining. Yeah, I'm going to just give a little bit of summary of the, of the things that we've talked about today in, in, in three bullet points is don't be afraid to fuel your training. Again, fuel allows for better training. Training will allow for better performance. Fuel is your friend. So that's one. To be patient, especially through puberty. We've mentioned that a few times. You know, your body's changing and evolving. It's going to be growing to be stronger and more resilient. And you just need to be patient through that period. And then I think three is just gradually and intelligently increasing training loads. Um, you know, there's most sports, especially in endurance, are, are, there's no peak age. There's a peak age range and it keeps getting bigger and bigger. You know, I, we're seeing world records from 25-year-olds. Kipchoge runs the Boston Marathon on Monday. His last race was a world record. I know they list him at age 38. He's in his early 40s. Um, yeah, so especially if you want to have a long, fruitful career, um, be patient and fuel well, and you'll maximize success. Thanks, Trent. You bet, guys. It was really awesome to meet you both. Thanks for uh, inviting me on, and you guys have a great, great podcast. So it's honored. I'm honored to be here. Trent, thanks so much. It's been such a pleasure to finally meet you face-to-face. Enjoy your training down there in Sedona and Flagstaff. That was another episode of Fast Talk Femme. Subscribe to Fast Talk Femme wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk Femme are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback and any thoughts you have on topics or guests that may be of interest to you. Get in touch via social. You can find Fast Talk Labs on Twitter and Instagram at Fast Talk Labs, where you'll also find all our episodes. 
You can also check them out on the web at fasttalklabs.com. For Dr. Trent Stellingworth and Julie Young, I'm Dee Dee Barry. Thank you for listening.